there! Thanks for listening to the Elevate Christian Church podcast. We exist as a church to connect people with God and each other. Today's message comes to us from our lead minister and preacher, Kevin Barton. We hope this inspires you, grows you, and challenges you in your faith and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy! I want to begin by introducing you to somebody who I, I don't think anybody has known or met this person. His name is William McPherson. Uh, William has, I, I believe, passed away years ago, uh, but he made his living uh, as a superintendent uh, at a stone quarry. And one day, just like any other day, he got up and he got dressed and he went to work and he was there at work. And while he was there, an explosion happened uh, that maimed him. He lost his eyesight and both of his hands were blown off. Okay, so he couldn't see and he didn't have hands. Uh, and this was in the 80s before cell phones or anything like that. And so one of the things that he determined that he wanted to be able to do is read his Bible. But he couldn't see to read, and he didn't have fingers to, to, to read the Braille, and he didn't have a phone like we do that you could just click on and it would read the, the Bible to you. And so here's what he learned to do. He learned to read Braille with the tip of his tongue. And before he died, William McPherson read the entire Bible cover to cover four times, only using the tip of his tongue. Now, to me, that's amazing because do you know how many people, do you know how many Christians, who, people who wear the name Christ, almost never read their Bible? Yet this guy was so in love with the Word of God that he learned to read Braille with his tongue. Barna did a survey, the Barna Statistical Group, in 2020. They were surveying during the, uh, the, the COVID pandemic, and they asked Christians uh, to, to state how often they read their Bible. Now listen, this isn't people. These are Christians. These are church-going people. 50% of Christians admitted to reading their Bibles less than twice a year. Twice a year. Those who did read their Bible, of the other 50% that did read their Bible, only 34% of those Christians read their Bibles more than once a week. That also included Sundays when they opened their Bibles for church. Now, I think we would all agree that the Word of God is so, so important. So why don't we read it? Why don't we study it? Why don't we meditate on it? Why don't we hide it in our hearts? Why don't we memorize Scripture to, to prevent sin in our lives? We're jumping back into uh, the series we've been in all year. We're uh, in the armor of God. And today we're going to look at the final piece of armor, which is known as the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so rather than go back and review all the pieces of armor that we've already looked at over the past several months and explain what they are, I'm just going to read the passage in its entirety so it can speak to us. Let, let me just say this uh, real quick, and this is a precursor, because um, we're going to get a little graphic in here. Uh, I, I don't know where you bought the lie that when you became a Christian that you were you know, going to put on a pair of sandals and a pair of rainbow suspenders and jump on a unicorn and drive through a flowery meadow with God all your life. But that's not what the Christian life is at all. The Christian life, the Christian walk is a war. 
And Paul is describing in Ephesians 6 warfare. And in a war, you have loss, you have gain, you have victory, you have defeat, you have blood, sweat, and tears. It is violent, it is brutal, it is hard, it is an absolute war. And so Paul is writing the church in Ephesus so that they would engage in this warfare, this spiritual warfare, not against flesh and blood, but against all these evil forces that are pressing down, trying to make you fall, trying to make you sin, trying to tear your relationships apart, trying to to make you fail. And so it is an absolute war. We're in warfare. With that in mind, go to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to pick up in verse 10. We're going to read the uh, the armor of God passage in its entirety. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities and against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Time out. Stop right there. That phrase, the evil day, mark it down in your Bible or at the very least mark it down in your mind. That phrase, the evil day, because we're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. That you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Okay, so we've talked about all these other pieces of armor. Today we come to the last piece in verse 17. The sword of the Spirit, which represents the Word of God. Now remember, Paul called us to be warriors. In order to be a warrior, you need a weapon. A a warrior is only as good as his weapon. You know, uh, great warriors are known by their weapons. You read about the great warriors in literature and and pop culture. What are they without their weapon? Like, can you imagine King Arthur without Excalibur, his sword? He wouldn't be a king for very long. That was his weapon. Or how about those of you who used to grow up watching Zorro? Remember Zorro, the guy that took his sword and would go... If he didn't have a sword to do that, if he had like a, a Crayola crown to do that, it wouldn't be as effective. Um, he is known by his sword. And those of you who like to live in the future, uh, think about Luke Skywalker. What would Luke Skywalker be without his trusty lightsaber? It was just a sword made of light. Warriors need their weapons. Paul instructs us that we're at war and we have only one offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, if that's foreign to you, if you didn't grow up reading the Bible and you're like, wait a minute, you're equating the Bible to a sword? Yes, no, I'm not. Paul is. 
uh, the, the Bible is, but I, I felt the same way. I didn't grow up in the church. I lived uh, in the inner city of Washington, D.C., in some really rough neighborhoods with a single mom, and uh, I would go to this little podunk town about an hour away in Virginia to visit my grandparents, and they would often take me to church. I'd ne- I didn't grow up going to church, and I'll never forget that one of the first Sundays they took me to church. They said, all right now, Kevin, when we get there, you're going to go downstairs to junior church. And I'd been downstairs at that church before. It's like a dungeon. I'm like, don't send me to the dungeon. Uh, no, you're going to go downstairs, and you're going to go to junior church, and it's church for, for kids your age. And I was like, all right, and, it, and you'll like it. And so well, went down there and sat down. There's about 20, 25 of us, and they started singing those little songs about Zacchaeus being a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, and he climbed up a tree. And um, you know, it was all foreign to me, and I was just kind of observing. And they got done singing. And the, this teacher, her name was Jenny White, just the kindest old lady. She's in, been in heaven for years now, but I'll, I'll never forget. She said, all right, everyone, go ahead and pull out your swords. Now, listen, I grew up in a rough neighborhood where I had to fight for everything. And I'm thinking, are we about to have a knife fight in here? So I'm looking around the room for scissors because I'm going to shank somebody if they come up with a sword. But they didn't get out knives. They all went and they got Bibles out. And I raised my hand because, you know, I didn't go to church. And, and I said, hey, I don't understand what you're talking about. You told everyone to get out swords, and they're getting out their Bibles. You ever had one of those pivotal moments in your life that could make or break you? This was one for me. Like, she could have responded, you idiot. What you, of course, you don't know what the word, the word of God. But she didn't. She knew my background, and she was just so sweet. And so kind, and she explained to me that, hey, the, the sword is the word of God. And, and she took me to this passage, and just, just complete, complete kindness and patience. Uh, and, and I'll never forget that. Because of that moment, I wanted to go back to that church. Uh, because Not because of the pastor, not because of the music, not because they had fog machines or sliding boards going into the classrooms. Just because of this sweet old lady who took the time to teach me that the word of God is equated to a sword. So you go to verse 17 of the text, and Paul, as he's finishing this up, he says, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, that that word for sword is a very interesting word because it's not the kind of sword that I think many of you are thinking of. It's not this big, giant, six to eight foot sword that they had in medieval times. It was more like a small 18 inch to two foot dagger. It was a a very small sword. I I think sometimes when when we think of the sword of of the spirit in the armor of God, we're picturing this big, giant sword in in medieval times. Uh, but this is not the sword that they're referring to. Now, I will stop and pause and tell you, Roman soldiers had two types of swords. They did have the big type of medieval sword that was six to eight feet. Uh, it was known as a broad sword, kind of, and it was used to chop off arms and, and, and heads of, of enemy soldiers. But there was a problem with this big giant sword. It was extremely heavy. And you had to use two hands. Even a grown man had to use two hands to wield it. And if you were using both hands for that big sword, you didn't have uh, a hand for your shield. And so the sword of the Spirit, the one that Paul is talking about, are these swords that are used in close 
hand-to-hand combat. This is short, double-sided sword, very sharp, used for close combat. Now, remember I told you to mark in your minds, verse 13, the evil day? You know what that means? That means that the evil day for you or the evil day for me is when Satan's close. He's not shooting from afar. He is right up on you. He is in your space. He is in your face. And you have got to defend yourself. You are in hand-to-hand combat. So in those times when the devil attacks and he is right up on you, in your business, in your face, you have two options. Option number one is run. Just take off and, and run as fast as you can. Option number two is to pull out your sword and fight. Now, there's a problem with option number one. Because a lot of us would say, well, I'll just run from Satan. There's a, there's a huge problem with this option. How many of you, and this will, this will definitely date you age-wise, but how many of you remember the Las Vegas group, Siegfried and Roy? All right. Even, even if you weren't alive, when they, they, they're, they're pretty famous. So Siegfried and Roy uh, were these two guys from Germany. They grew up during uh, the World War, and uh, they, they moved here, and they were magicians. But not only were they magicians, they, they had these exotic giant tigers and lions and, and leopards, and they would make them disappear and all this stuff. They had this huge act. In fact, Siegfried and Roy are given credit uh, to making Las Vegas what it is today. It used to be a dirty little desert town that nobody wanted to go to. And, and then they came and, and they started having this act and, and then more and more people came. And so uh, they're given a, a, a lot of credit. Well, you may remember Roy was attacked by a tiger on stage and it nearly killed him uh, in the early 2000s. That pretty much ended his career. But you know, that wasn't the first time there was an incident with Big Cats and Siegfried and Roy. In the late 70s, They had a family known as, uh, let me get this right, the Seven Alexanders. The Seven Alexanders were a family that were, they were tumblers and they were acrobats. And they were on the strip, they were opening up for Siegfried and Roy. Well, this one particular night, a 10-year-old boy, Sean, of of the Seven Alexanders, he left the family dressing room because there was only one bathroom in there, and he was going to make his way all the way down the hall to another bathroom. So he, it was right before they were about to go on stage. And so he opens the door, he starts walking down the hallway towards the bathroom, and a giant leopard gets out and goes walking right by him to the end of the hallway. I, I would have probably passed out, because leopards are, are dangerous creatures. The leopard got to the end of the hallway and turned around. There was nowhere to go. And so the leopard had Sean in his sights. And there they were staring at each other. And Sean made this fatal mistake. He ran. You don't run from a big cat. Within seconds, the cat was upon him, had him pinned to the ground. It was only a heroic effort by his mother that saved his life. He ended up having 14 puncture wounds on his head and his neck and spent three weeks in the hospital. He was mauled by a leopard. Why? Because he ran. You don't run from a big cat. Okay, so think about option one. Satan's before you, 
You're in this confrontation, this war. He's trying to get you to sin or fall and you're struggling. You can run, but I don't recommend it. Because Peter describes Satan in a way that's, that just makes the hairs on my neck stand up. In 1 Peter 5, 8, he says this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So you can run with the odds, and may the odds ever be in your favor, as they say, but they're not going to be, because you cannot outrun a big cat. You will lose every time. So option two is in the evil day, when Satan is right up on you, is to get out your sword and fight. This sword that is given to us by God, by the Holy Spirit, is the only thing that we possess that can cause the devil to flee because the devil hates the word of God. He's allergic to God's word. He's allergic to God's truth. He can't stand it because God's truth condemns him. So here's, if you go broad and you're looking at Ephesians 6 in its entire context, here's the image we have. We are on a battlefield called the world, and we've got these unseen enemies all around us, and we are battling, and they are attacking us from long range with these fiery arrows, these lies, and these accusations, and these half-truths, and these whispers that we tell ourselves. And so we've got our armor on, and we've got our shields up, and we're defending our ourselves. What the Apostle Paul says here is there is a day coming for everybody in here. It comes and it goes. It's a day. It can be a week. It can be a season. It is called the evil day when Satan is not firing from long range. He is right there in your face. He is right before you. You are face to face with him or one of his demonic minions. And the only thing you have to defend yourself is this sword. And when he's before you, you can run. We talked about how that probably won't work in your favor. Or you can take that sword, that dagger, and plunge it into his heart and watch him flee from you. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil. In other words, put up a fight. Be ready. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And, and I want you to understand something. The devil is coming after all of us. He is, there are going to be seasons in your life when he's not firing from afar. He is up close and personal. He is in your face. And in the art of warfare, I think it's important to know your enemy, to know how they're going to attack. So for every, for every one of us in here, Satan uses three methods to attack. These are the same three methods he's used since the beginning of time. He used them on Eve. He used them on Jesus. He uses them on me. He uses them on you. There, there are three ways he attacks. The Bible calls them these three things. The desires of the flesh, that's one way. The desires of the eyes, that's another way. And then what is called the pride of life. John talks about this in 1 John 2.16. He says this, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, there's one, the desires of the eyes, there's two, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Remember, the world is the system that the devil and the flesh operate to attack you. So they're the, they're the three enemies. Now, what we've been doing during this, this portion of the series 
is we've been kind of going back to Genesis chapter 3 to that fall of mankind and kind of pulling some stuff out here. I, I just want to go back there for a second and I want you to see when Satan is tempting Eve, he uses these three methods. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw the tree was good for food, there's the desires of the flesh. Wait a minute. I'm hungry. This is good. I can eat this. This, this can satisfy this craving this, that I have with inside. So there's the desire of the flesh. And that it was a delight to the what? To the eyes. There's the desires of the eyes. Wait a minute. This is pretty. This is like fruit I've never seen before. I've got to have this. And that the tree was desired to make one wise. There's the pride of life. Wait a minute. If I eat this, I'll know what God knows. I won't have to rely on God anymore. That's pride setting in. And she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he also ate. Now, I've heard a lot of preachers who, I, I, maybe they don't care for women, but they put a lot of blame on Eve for the fall of man. And they, they say things like, well, she's the one that was deceived. Adam wasn't deceived because he was the smart one. I'm like, you know, you got it wrong, dummy. Eve was so smart, right, that the, the devil had to deceive her. What does the text say? After she ate, Adam's just laying on the couch, and she's like, here, eat this. And he's like, well, okay. And he eats it. He's the dumb one, right? He's the dumb one. She's the smart one. But he, so he uses these three methods, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, and the pride of life to make her fall. Listen, that's exactly how he attacks us. One of those three ways. One is the desires of the flesh. If it feels good, I'm going to do it. If, 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 if I want it, I've got to have it. I don't care who I hurt. I don't care the amount of collateral damage I leave behind. If it's going to make me feel good, if it's my flesh is calling for it, it could be pornography, it could be some type of addiction, it could be food, it could be praise. I always got to be, whatever it is, I've got to have it because it makes me feel a certain way. That's the desires of the flesh. The desires of the eyes are, if it looks good, I want it. You see that guy's truck over there? Man, I'd like to have that. And envy and jealousy. You see that guy's house? I need one of those. See the way that she dressed? I want to dress like that. And the things that we see with our eyes, we want. And the third way is the pride of life. Every sin that you commit is stemmed in pride. Every last one of them. Pride is the chief of all sins in my book. And you might say, that doesn't make sense. What about sexual immorality? That stems from pride. God says, listen, i got a plan for you. I've got a mate for you. Uh, uh, you're gonna, yeah, I want you to get married and have children and live together and love each other. And your souls will mingle together. And you say, it's my body. I'll do what I want. If I want to sleep around, I'm going to sleep around. So you're committing sexual immorality, but what's it stemmed in? Pride. And pride has a lot of hateful things about it. Arrogance. Unforgiveness. Anger, rage, malice, bitterness. It's pride that makes us say, I ain't going to say I'm sorry. It's pride that makes us say, I'm not going to admit that I'm wrong. It's pride that makes us say, I'm not going to admit that I'm a sinner in need of Savior. And so when we fall, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, or the pride of life, when we follow this, it's, it's literally like we're in war with the devil and he's taking a dagger and plunging it into our spiritual hearts. But here's the great news. 
you don't have to fall. You've been given a weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And the Word of God is powerful and it's active, it's sharp, and it pierces to the core. We, you know, we don't have to look any further in Scripture uh, than the example set for us by Jesus when he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness. Satan used those same three tactics, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life to attack Eve. He also used them to attack Jesus. But in this encounter, the Son of God, Jesus, comes armed. He comes with a sword, and he's ready for a fight. If you have your Bibles, we're going to go to Luke chapter 4. You can also find this account in Matthew 4, but Luke chapter 4 gives us this picture of the temptation of Jesus. Picking up in verse 1, it says this, And Jesus, full of what? The Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. What are you full of? Don't let your spouse answer that. You answer it, right? If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, when you accepted Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit rushed into you and he filled you. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You and I are, have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God. Those are the only two things Jesus brought in the wilderness to defeat the devil. The Holy Spirit in him and the Word of God. We have those two things in our possessions. So look what the Holy Spirit does next. You've got to watch the Holy Spirit. Jesus returned from the Jordan and was led by whom? The Spirit into the wilderness. Now, do you think the Holy Spirit knew the devil was there waiting? I think Jesus probably knew too because he was God, but that's beside the point. I want you to notice that the Spirit led him into the wilderness to fight. And in your life, in my life, sometimes God's Holy Spirit will lead you right into the evil day, right into the wilderness, right into the battle, right into confrontation with the devil, where the Holy Spirit says, enough of this, we're going to settle this right here, right now, once and for all. For 40 days, Jesus was tempted by the devil, verse 2. He ate nothing during those days. And I, I, I love Luke because he always states the obvious. And when they ended, he was hungry. You think, <laughs> you think 40 days he was hungry. The longest fast I've ever done in my life is 21 days. And that wasn't an entire, it was a partial fast. Uh, it's when we, we just ate raw fruit and vegetables for 21 days. No meat, no dairy, no coffee, just, just meat or just vegetables. <laughs> I got to tell you, by week three of that fast... I was so hungry. That's all I could think of. I could almost not function. I was like, I will not eat another piece of celery. Uh, I was so hungry. And I remember going to Target and being out, and I would smell like the steakhouses, and I'd smell that, and I'd be like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. That was a partial fast for 21 days. Jesus fasts for 40 days, no food. He's weak. He's tired. He's hungry. And so the devil is going to tempt him. Pick up in verse 3. And the devil said to him, said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Okay, do you see that right there? 
That's the desire of the flesh. Jesus, I know you're hungry. You haven't eaten. You've got to be craving food because, yeah, you're God, but you're completely man and you're trapped in this human body. And, you know, 40 days is about as long as you can go before you die. Uh, Wouldn't it be nice to make this rock into some piping hot bread? You can even rustle up some butter. It would be so good. He's appealing to his desire of the flesh. Look at the next verse, verse 4. And Jesus answered him, it is written. Let me say that phrase again. It is written. Man shall not live by the bread alone. Notice what Jesus is doing. When he says it is written, what's he doing? He's quoting scripture. He's actually pulling his sword out and plunging it into the heart of the devil. It is written. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3, which says, Man doesn't live by bread alone, but lives by the word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. And so Satan can't get him with the desires of the flesh, so he's going to move on to the desire of the eyes. Look at verse 4. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Let me stop right there. So he didn't just take him up and say, here's all these kingdoms, here's the Romans, here's the Jewish people, here's the Scythians and the barbarians. He showed them every civilization in in, in every moment of time. Every great civilization. He's saying, look, you can have all of this, Jesus. And he said to him, verse 6, to you I will give all authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will... Give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. He sounds like a used car salesman, right? You get on that lot and you see a, you know, a pretty red truck, and then he comes strolling out there, a little snake. And if you're a used car salesman, I love you and Jesus loves you too. Um, but it's like, hey, uh, you want to take this for, for a ride? And you get in there and you see all the gadgets and it's all beautiful and it smells like new. And you can, I mean, it's sensory overload and, and you're riding down and you're seeing how people are looking at you. Oh, yeah. And you get in the parking lot. What's he say? What can I do to get you to drive away in this truck today? Right? This is what Satan's doing right here. He said, look at all these kingdoms that you can rule over. It's only going to cost you one price. Bow down and worship me. Verse 8. And Jesus answered, it is written. You shall, not wor- you, you shall worship the Lord your God and him, and only him shall you serve. And so again, he quotes scripture, another dagger. One final time, the the devil is going to appeal to the pride of life. Look at verse 9 and following. And he took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. He's appealing to his pride. You say you're the Son of God. We're on this We're on this. Uh, on the temple, throw yourself off. And then he misquotes a scripture from Psalms. That's the only way Satan will quote scripture. He'll either misquote it or he'll twist it. He'll never give it to you straight. And he misquotes the scripture saying, if you fall, prove it. If you jump and prove that you're the son of God and the angels will catch you. It's like a bully on the playground, right? Prove it. <clears throat> kind of, I did this one time. This, this kid was mouthing off to me. And I was like, oh, yeah, you want some of this? And you ever done this you, on the playground? 
draw a line. I was like, cross that line and see what happens. We were on the you know, school playground at recess. He crossed the line. So I made another line. Oh, you cross this line, now see what happens. He crossed that line. So I made a third line. He crossed that line. And then I just ran to the teacher and he got in trouble and, and all as well. But this is what Satan is doing here. He's saying, you're the son of God. I'm going to appeal to your pride. Prove it. I'm going to go all the way down, Andy, to verse 12 for time's sake. And Jesus answered him. It's the same thing as saying, it is written. He says, it is said, he's quoting scripture, you shall not put the Lord your God to test. Now, don't, don't miss verse 13, because this is key for you and me. Then the devil had ended every temptation. He departed from him. In other words, he fleed from him until an opportune time. This is exactly what he does to us, right? He'll come in and tempt us, try to mess with us, and then he'll leave. And then he'll just start firing arrows from a distance, and then he'll come back in, okay? But what made the devil leave? The Word of God. I mean, Jesus could have put him in a headlock in the desert and ended everything right then and there. He could have. But he made him flee with the Word of God. And listen, I don't want to be one of those preachers who tell you and beat you over the head that you must read your Bible, but I am a preacher, and you definitely should read your Bible. The only way you and I are going to have victory over the flesh that imprisons us and the devil that impales us is to have our swords drawn, which is the Word of God. It worked for Jesus, and it works for us. There's this great evangelist. His name was Gypsy Smith. I don't, Gypsy is probably not his, his real name, but he, he's, he died a long time ago. But Gypsy Smith was this kind of guy who would tell you like it was, and he had one, one of his church members come to him, and he said, you know, Pastor Smith, he said, you keep telling us to read, read the Bible, read the Bible. He said, I have read through the Bible time and time again, and I don't think it's inspired because it's done nothing for me. I've gone through it several times. To which Gypsy Smith replied, well, why don't you let it go through you once? And then you'll tell a different story. Remember several weeks ago, we talked about those of you who might have this argument. Well, what's the point? Why should I read God's word? Because if I read it today, this time next week, I'm not going to remember a thing. Or some of you, right, if you're ADD like me, I can read it today. And by tonight, I don't, I don't remember what I read. So what's the point? All right, and here's what we said. We put a picture of a bucket that had holes in it. And, and we said, that's how you feel. You're, you're reading the Word of God, and it's poor, but it is, is, as quickly as you can read it, it seems to, you, you don't retain it. It seems to be going out of you. And here's the point we made then, is that what if that bucket was just full of dirt? What's going to eventually happen over time? It's going to cleanse the bucket out. And so you may not feel like you're retaining the Word of God, but the Word of God has a way of cleansing you. And so you don't have to remember every word that you read. But I think it will help you, hear me now, immensely if you start remembering scriptures that are pertinent to your sin struggle and your circumstances. You start sharpening your sword with those scriptures. That's what the Bible tells us to do. Psalm 19, 119.11 says, 
I have stored your word in my heart. Some translations say I've hid it. I've hid your word in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. You see, you hide his word in your heart. So when the devil comes up close on that evil day, you, you let him come close. Say, come here, come here, come a little closer. You let him get close, and then boom, you jam that dagger, that sword into his heart with the word of God. So for, for me, and you know me, I, sometimes I'm maybe too honest. Uh, like my biggest sin struggle on this earth is anxiety. And I'm not talking about I just get a little worried about things. I'm talking about sinful anxiety. I'm talking about lay awake at night and not sleeping anxiety. I'm talking about eating Tums like they're candy type of anxiety. I'm talking about panic attacks and irrational fear type of anxiety. And that's the sin that Satan likes to use against me. And when he uses it against me, that's the sin he likes to get up on me. He likes, he doesn't, he's not firing little arrows. He wants to be right in my face because I honestly think he likes to see the fear in my eyes when it happens. And so when anxiety hits, for me, that's the evil day. When it comes, he's there with a suitcase full of worries and he's like, gotcha. When that happens, when this unseen enemy is before me, man, I just pull out my sword. I pull out my dagger and I just start swinging. I just start quoting scripture. I just go to the book, chapter, and verse that speaks against this war of anxiety. I go to Philippians 4 where Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but by everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and guard your mind in Christ Jesus. I go to Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says, look at the birds and look at the flowers. You're worried about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Do you know how much God loves those birds and loves those flowers? He loves you much more than that. So therefore, don't worry about today. I mean, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough time for worries of itself. I go to 1 Peter 5, 7, where I'm promised if I cast my anxiety on him, he'll take it because he cares for me. I open my Bible during those times and literally go to Isaiah 41 and I stand there and I read it in a loud voice to the enemy before me. It says, fear not for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so Satan gets up close and personal. He's attacking. I bring my dagger out and I start quoting scripture and I don't mean to be graphic. I go all Norman Bates on him. Ja, ja, ja. I'm Norman Bates. He's in the shower. He's coming to attack me. I pull my dagger of scripture out and I begin to plunge it in him and a crazy thing happens. He flees. He runs. He, he leaves until an opportune time. Remember what we said, man, that the Christian walk is not a walk through the meadow. It's a walk on the minefield. And we got to understand that we're at war. You got to understand that you, the devil hates you. He hates your family. He hates any success that you have. He hates it. He wants to take it away from you. You going to run? You going to run and let him maul you? Are you going to get your dagger out and go on Norman Bates on him? That's what I suggest. 
The Word of God is all we need. Yet 50% of Christians never read their Bible. Only 34% read it at least once a week. Almost none of us memorize Scripture. And we're losing ground in our walk with God and our struggle with sin. And all we have to do is use our sword. So I have a challenge for you this week. It's real simple. Whatever your sin struggle is, whatever that sin is, when you know Satan's not going to send a minion, he's not going to fire from long range, it's that sin where he gets right up in your face, whatever that sin is, start memorizing Scripture to combat it. You know how to use Google, right? If you don't, I'll teach you. So if you struggle with lust, if that's the, the sin, you get online or you get in your Bible and you find scriptures like I found to refute the devil when that lust comes your way. If you struggle with your temper and anger and rage and your, your family's always walking around on eggshells because they don't know what kind of mood you're in, start reading and quoting scriptures when that anger comes on to the devil and I promise you, he will flee. And so write them down. On index cards, put them on your steering wheel, put them on your mirror in the bathroom. If you can't find scriptures for your sin struggle, email me, kevin at elevatecc.com. It's on the website. I will gladly filter those to you. And then when that evil day comes, you'll be ready. Let him get close. Come here, old boy. And when he gets close, pull out that dagger, shank him right in the heart. He'll flee from you. You know, I mentioned King Arthur at the beginning of the service and his sword Excalibur. Did you know that the sword Excalibur technically didn't belong to King Arthur? Excalibur was given to King Arthur by magical means, by the Lady of the Lake. And it was not a weapon forged in this world, but in another. The sword comes from another realm. And once Arthur was defeated and dying, it must be returned there. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 17, take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That Bible that you hold in your hand or that phone that has that Bible on it, that's not just any ordinary sword. It is the sword of the Spirit. It was not forged here on earth. It's a divine sword crafted to complete perfection by the Holy Spirit of God. It is a supernatural sword forged from the hand of God, and it is so, so powerful. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate or partner with us in what God is doing here, check out our website at elevatecc.com. Until next time, God bless you and thanks again.